Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, David. Very well. I've had a good... It's been... It snapped cold here, and I think that's kind of been good. Uh, I got the fire lit. Uh, yeah, it's been very productive and satisfying. Perfect. Yeah, we got a bit of snow here, mostly slush. Went for a nice morning walk about 8 o'clock to go buy some coffee from the local coffee shop and got sleeted on and my shoes got wet because I didn't plan ahead and buy boots this season, which I will need to do. But uh, yeah, life is just moving at a quick pace for me now as the kid continues to grow and we got a new car, a 2020 Chevy Trax, which I'm pretty excited about. But um, yeah, life just keeps happening, doesn't it? It does. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness. I, I, I think that, you know, that's going to be a, a theme of uh, in your family uh, as you've really become a family. Um, even more so, I, I think that that will be something that you'll you'll find that you need to document, you know, as best you can photographically in journals. Uh, yeah, but exciting times. Exciting times. Exciting times. Indeed. A spring baby. Spring baby. Yes. Yes. After the after the dark winter, right? Mm. We'll have a nice little ray of sunshine there. But Chris, let me ask you this question. What are we going to talk about today? Okay, well, I thought we'd talk about something that, that we really all love and enjoy. Some of us uh, more openly than others, some secretly. But uh, I, I think about a, a quote from Baudelaire. Um, he said, everyone, but particularly Americans, love to be fooled. And building on our discussions about Charles Fort and damned facts and questioning science, I thought we'd look into the whole wonderful world of frauds and hoaxes. Uh, there's a great category of travel literature, particularly from the 18th and 19th century, about uh, travel liars and imaginary uh, journeys. Uh, I mean, think of Baron de Lahontan, Lahontan Lake, the Lahontan Cutthroat Trout. They're named after him, and he really was. He was he was a soldier, French soldier, and an explorer. Uh, but that didn't stop him <laughs> from uh, creating some quite uh, amazing personal legends. He he invented a river which. Some people, you know, try to claim was the Missouri River. Eh, I don't think so. He created mythical Native American tribes, giant mountains, a vast salt lake, six cities of stone inhabited by bearded people who no one's ever seen, uh, with sharp pointed caps and their own language. And he was an immense hit on the lecture circuit in, in Europe. Uh, and, and Leibniz thought he was fabulous. Leibniz, for mm. God's sake. Wow. Um, and then, you know, how can you get past the great bamboozler and the inventor of the ballyhoo, P.T. Barnum, Phineas T. Barnum? Probably, I, in my view, maybe the ultimate American. I mean, here's someone who was trafficking in legless wonders, living skeletons, Patagonian giants, lobster boys and Aztec children. He masterminded the grand Hoboken buffalo hunt, which I think would make a great movie. The Wedding of Tom Thumb, maybe one of the most, you know, 
intense tabloid celebrity events of the 19th century. His uh, wonderful expression, which I think is just so beautiful, his mission statement was a commitment to the biggest, the greatest, the most wonderful, and the best. America, baby. Oh, man. He was so on top of it, so ahead of his time. When the American Museum took off in New York, the crowds were so intense that he had to develop some way to keep people moving. So he put up a sign, and this is a very famous anecdote, maybe some people have heard of it, but he put up a sign saying, this way to the egress, this way to the egress. <laughs> well, of course, everyone wanted to see the egress, thinking it was some sort of amazing creature from the Southern Hemisphere or from the beginning of time, you know? Right. And um, right. so <laughs> that got me thinking about, um, uh, well, connecting back to my, my mystery panther story from uh, Australia, I'm thinking about the, the enigma of the Piltdown Man. You remember that? I do. We're, yeah. we're, talking, we're talking about the years just before World War I, when the reputation of England in, in uh, fossil-finding terms was falling very far behind a Germany, France, Spain, and... An enterprising man named Charles Dawson, who was quite a committed um, fossil, amateur fossil hunter, discovered the missing link in a gravel pit in Sussex, England. Well, there was just one problem. Uh, and he had a great line he would write to his friend, uh, uh, a guy named Woodward Smith, and say, I believe we are in luck again as he found more and more bones. Mm. Well, unfortunately, they turned out to be carefully carved and stained uh, human bones and ape bones, particularly an orangutan, which I think, to me, that's an interesting resonance with Edgar Allan Poe. Remember Murders in the Rue Moore? Yep, exactly. That's, that's, that's what I yeah, thought of. That's yeah. the first thing I thought of, yep. It's a great, great scandal and hoax that I think is just terrific. I mean, it... it it, it, it was only finally unwound very, very recently in, in, in 2009 with our, our very sophisticated dating and chemical analysis. And we, we we're pretty certain now that Dawson was, was acting alone. But at one point, um, Deschardins and Arthur Conan Doyle were, were considered as possible co-conspirators. So, I mean, what a great, great sort of story. And, and then I thought about the Bunga Bunga affair. Okay. 1910. Okay. William Cole, who's kind of the Oscar Wilde of the London Society set, uh, teamed up with the actress Sarah Bernhardt's makeup man and presented a group of Abyssinian princes to the cream of the British Admiralty on board the HMS Dreadnought, the greatest battleship in the English fleet. This is the part I love. One of the princes was Virginia Woolf. Perfect. Just to prove that she had more sense of humor than, than you know, many people think. You know, bunga bunga. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> there are these just, and Louis de Rougemont, what a guy. He claimed to have lived 30 years with the cannibals of Australia. Cannibalism is not known in Australia. It never was. He 
had his waxwork likeness in Madame Tussauds. He had an enormous career on the lecture circuit, claiming, you know, adventures of being shipwrecked and uh, taking part in cannibal feasts and building a house of pearl shells and sending off fleets of pelicans carrying messages in six languages, riding giant turtles. And he even uh, claimed to have entertained his savage hosts mm. by drawing a huge picture which could only be seen from the air, connecting back to an earlier theme of ours, a huge picture of Queen Victoria in the nude, which is, <laughs> to me, that's a little bit of a disturbing idea just unto itself. Uh -huh. um, he wrote about living bridges of insects and mountains of gold and finding uh, the bones of lost explorers. But he, he did have a problem one evening in London at a very, very auspicious dinner when, and there happened to be quite a few people uh, from uh, Australia there, and he spoke about watching the miracle of wombats rising in a cloud at sunset. I used to have a wombat on my property, and I can tell you they were doing well to stumble around. <laughs> They're not the kind of creatures that take to the sky. The noble and majestic wombat. But, you know, here we have these wonderful people, you know, going out on the lecture circuits around the world, creating a sense of wonder, another one of our key words, providing some real entertainment, and yet lying through their teeth. You know, mm. wily people. Think of Arthur Ferguson. He sold Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square to a rich Iowan. He went on to sell Big Ben, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. So when you hear about someone, you know, you want to buy a bridge, that was the guy who, who, uh, who invented it. And the other thing that's really odd, I think, and this connects back to, to, uh, to Fort very, very definitely, Charles Waterton was a, a very eminent 19th century naturalist. I mean, you couldn't write the history of, uh, of, of modern biology without mentioning him. He had uh, the habit of hiding under his hall table and leaping out to bite surprised visitors. Hmm. Uh, he would eat as a way of experimenting uh, all everything he collected, and he became quite a connoisseur of bat urine, for instance. <laughs> um, that guy, he would have been patient zero in 2020, wouldn't he have? He, look, he, he was gung-ho. He defined gung-ho. And in addition to being a, a really proper uh, amateur gentleman scientist of tremendous uh, resource and, and courage, he was a very skilled taxidermist. And he would combine different parts of birds and animals to create his own monsters, which uh, he would give the names of famous Protestant personalities to. He thought that was very amusing. He called them nondescripts. His most famous one, uh, people will, might have seen, it's uh, the face of a red howler monkey. Um, and many people thought that he'd stuffed a human head, oh my. which he was... Oh, uh, yeah, I see it right here. Yeah. He was quite happy to go along with that. Um, you know, and it just, I, I think it connects with this whole history of, 
you know, the great secret societies, the magical uh, uh, fellowships of, you know, the Knights Templar, the Rosicrucians, the, the Illuminati, the Kabbalists, the, and the Order of the Golden Dawn, you know, mm -hmm. Aleister Crowley, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you read his bio, you know, mountain climber, chess champion, spellmaster, mm -hmm. sex pervert, drug fiend, and, uh, you know, prolific author. I mean, how can you not like a guy like yeah. that, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Something that's standing out to me about all these folks that you're mentioning, uh, perhaps with the exception of P.T. Barnum, is that they seem to be folks who are independently wealthy. And mm -hmm. when you think of hoaxers and frauds, you often think of con men uh, who have a sort of end goal at the, at the culmination of their frauds and hoaxes. But these guys weren't doing that for money, were they? Well, that's a very interesting point. No, they they really were not. They were doing it for some sort of private aesthetic, that that an appreciation of of wonder and magic and 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 you know obviously I think some degree of of, of mental health issue. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we could grant that, but they were. It might be fair to say that that their greatest indulgence in the in the sense of their wealth and education was a tolerance for their own eccentricity and a desire to share that hmm. you know hmm. um, but they clearly believed what they were doing i mean uh waterman was was a great example i mean he he was taken very very seriously as a scientist and and contributed enormously to the background. Uh, I mean, he could be mentioned in the same breath as, as Humboldt and Darwin, mm. you know? Right. Um, and, and if we go back, you know, further in time, you know, John Dee, uh, the Elizabethan Magus, mm -hmm. and uh, his ghost-raising partner, Ed Kelly, mm -hmm. uh, Pico della Mirandola, um, Agrippa, Paracelsus, um, even Nostradamus, you know? These were people who are right on that cusp of of magician and scientist, you know, proto-scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and they they practiced the whole kit and caboodle, disguise, forgery, uh, necromancy, uh, multiple foreign language fluency, espionage. They were masters of history. Um, they were often very, very successful in a romantic sense. Sounds a they, lot like they, Aleister Crowley, actually. Yeah. They were they were really sort of um, I mean they happened to be men but there were there were there were some women who who I would like to know more about that fit into this mm -hmm. uh, but they were people for all seasons and all occasions you know they they were give them a task and they were out in front of them give them a lock to pick and and they could do it you know um, think of 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 uh, Cagliostro you know uh, the Giuseppe Balsamo who's you know really um, right on that border between a great magician of his time and, and a proto-scientist. But, you know, he was talking about, you know, the great secrets of Memphis and Egypt, you know, the, the home and birthplace of all magic. Uh, he wrote about giants and enormous animals and a, a city in the interior of Africa, a great place to, you know, to put a city then because, you know, it wasn't that well known, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, not a lot of information coming out of the Congo then. And, and people, how could you not want to hear those stories? And, yeah. and when it does come to, uh, to a woman, I, I, someone who I think would make a great, 
I always wanted to write a, the book for an opera about Madame Blavatsky, you know, oh, and her yeah. Tibetan Mahatmas, you yep. know. Great pull. Um, yep. I, I just think she she was a completely uh, self-invented person um, with a great mythology that was blending all of these, you know, genuine uh, mythic and magical traditions. Um, but it kind of comes down to the beauty of self-invention and... Mm. Uh, and to tie back to Fort, you know, we were saying in the last episode that, that one of the, the great gifts that he tried to, to bring to culture was the sense that, that we don't have to just accept uh, bland, uh, monolithic facts uh, that somebody else, you know, learned over time, that we can investigate and be kind of scientists ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that that he was, I think he would have said he was willing to put up with uh, some fraudulent stuff to keep an open mind, you know. Precisely. Um, yep. You know. That's it. Isn't that kind of the trade-off? I think that you use that sort of idea of the of profit and loss, and I I think that's a wonderful framework of, you know, sure you can be really hard-headed and dismiss everything. But you're going to dismiss a lot of things that turn out to be, you know, pretty good models of the world if you do, you know. And you're going to live quite a grumpy life while you do it, which should be a what I'm very good point. What I'm what I'm noticing about all these individuals that you're speaking about is that um, I liken what they were doing to art. I think that we give artists a lot of passes in these days, especially famous performance artists and you know, people who have installations, we sort of allow an artist who is, you know, let's say they have a exhibition at the MoMA, they are able to create these artist statements. And in doing the artist statement, they will kind of put forward a worldview that you have to accept in order to make the art work. Um, and when you think about these individuals that you're talking about, they really turned their lives into a kind of work of art. They turn themselves into stories in a way that I think us as artists and writers, we're so concerned with telling stories and inventing stuff, but in a safe way, making sure that everybody understands that this is our fiction that we're putting out there. Outside the realm of, you know, these kind of outsider weirdo artists, we haven't turned our own lives into a fiction that can be a place for magic, right? Because... It's my opinion that magic necessarily has to exist in a kind of dojo of fiction. It can't exist if you are attempting to concretize objective reality and construct your reality based on those kind of things. You have to be able to make both your own mythology and the mythology of the world around you um, in a way that is both true and untrue those are very problematic terms but let's just go with that for a second in order to live a magical life live an enchanted life what do you think about that well i think look i of course you know not surprisingly totally agree with that um i see sort of two branches here that i think we need to climb out on both of them okay uh the first one is is none of us sensibly want to want to be grumpy 
and to be tight-assed, yeah. you know? Right. I, I think that would be a terrible thing to have said of one. Um, you know, you want to be maybe practical. I don't think you want to be that hard-nosed, really. I, I don't. I, I think that's kind of, that's starting to get a little bit more towards grumpy and just shriveled in soul. No one wants to be the uh, buzzkill. stupid. <laughs> you know no, I mean? <laughs> no. You know, and you, you don't want to be the bunny, but you don't want to be the buzzkill. And so there is this sense of, 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 of seeking out uh, an enriched, enchanted sense of connection with life at its most uh, dynamic, you know? I think that's where, and, and then we'll sort it out from there, you yeah, know? Yeah. Let, let's have the chaos, and then if we really do have the clear thinking, the lucidity, and, and the strength of maybe some education, but certainly the strength of personal discipline, we'll work through the chaos. But give us some chaos to start with rather than, you know, nothing. And then we're just kind of sitting around going, you know, that's, that just sounds boring. Mm. Um, so there's that, that joy in, in the, the complexity, the mysteries, the strangeness, the, the inexplicable parts of, of living. And I think that anyone who, who is really alive to life knows that there's a lot that just you can't articulate, you can't pin down. And those are some of the most meaningful and impressive experiences. And, and those might be what meaning actually is. You know, maybe mm -hmm. meaning in life comes down to the things that are hardest to define in terms of meaning. I think there's a real chance of that. I, that's certainly the way I feel. So the question then becomes, what have we done as a culture? Let's, let's think of it in terms of, of, of Western culture, because we, we know a bit more about that. But I, I think this is true pretty broadly. And I think as we've become a global culture, you know, we can speak of culture just across, you know, transhuman. Um, what have we done to somehow discourage, retard, arrest, and possibly erode this sense of self-invention, eccentricity, personal magic, uh, the search for an entertainment of, of strange ideas? One of my favorite uh, heroes uh, said, I, I would like to be one who entertains strange ideas. Mm. Um, what have we done to discourage that in your view? Because I think we have. Well, I think we have too. And I think that it goes back initially to the separation of story and fact, telling people that okay. these are tall tales and this is the historical fact of what happened, when neither is really either of those things. They're both a little bit close to a sort of strange center. I think that the rise of uh, what a lot of really smart people have called scientism is the fault mm -hmm. of this. And I think that you have very adequately proven that in the, you know, the front part of this episode, that scientists used to be these complete nuts who would drink bat urine. Um, we have now brought everything down to cold hard facts and if it's not something that can be proved by cold hard facts then it isn't true in any sense of the world word however it gets a little bit trickier than that because 
we also have decided to ignore a copious amount of evidence that suggests things like psychic capabilities are real. There's a lot of evidence for that, if you take the time to read it. Or you can simply say, well, that's nonsense. It's been disproven. There's been no, you know, public, you know, double-blind experiment test to prove that psychic phenomena is not real, which, by the way, is not true. But it's, it's more comfortable in that way. I, without getting too much into the political, I really do think that it goes back to our kind of capitalist, consumerist mindset. I think that we make the best subjects of the current regime if we're not thinking too hard about things that might be outside of our paradigm. So I think it's a macro and a micro thing. I think that if macro level, you can convince people that God does not exist. That's the first big one, right? And then you can start telling them that all of these other strange occurrences are not true. What you're doing is you're really making this person who has no interest in exploring. Because if there's nothing left to explore, then all you really need to do is sit on your couch and watch Netflix and order DoorDash and be a nice little subject. The act of being a creative work of art, of your life being a work of art, is anathema to capitalism. And it's anathema to the kind of world that we've built for ourselves right now. So I think that individually, people like debunkers exist for their own personal reasons. They are committed to a worldview that in my view is very boring, but that they're very committed to. But I think the reason why those catch on, because we have to think about what narratives get platformed, right? How many times do we hear about the frauds and the hoaxes and the, and the debunkers? And how often do we hear about the things that can't quite be explained? You see what I'm saying? Right. So yes, I think yes, that, I so I think that individually, People have all various reasons for engaging in those kind of thoughts, but I do think that it serves power to have people completely disenchanted with the world, for it to be a world of concrete, physical objects that, conveniently, you can buy and sell. Okay, I have a couple of thoughts uh, while we're in the realm of science, mm -hmm. which I think this has been our focus uh, for this episode, and it's kind of one of our key, you know, foci for for the for the show at large. Um, I think that we're uh, inching our way uh, towards a, a discussion focusing on people like Rupert Sheldrake, not just him, but a kind of humanist, uh, expansionist, uh, very lateral thinking science that that is out there. I mean, he's too well-credentialed and far too intelligent and, and probably, in my view, the, the best uh, writing, uh, popular published scientist um, that, that I can think of. Um, at some point, I think we, we need to really you know, have a, a good debrief discussion about um, him and, and, a, and a few of, of colleagues that, that, that can be mentioned mm -hmm. in, in the same uh, paragraph, at least. But the question, um, and it relates to him, but, but to, to a perspective at large, is what is lost? Let, let's take the subject of, of, uh, of ESP, just for instance, yep. okay? Yep. It, we, we could pick out many other 
um, themes. But he's written about that. That that figures, you know, definitely into the Fortrian world. Um, what is lost in keeping an open mind about ESP? Hmm. I mean, certain experiments uh, have have argued against it very forcefully. Other experiments have shown some real possibilities. Clearly, we know, and this applies across any scientist, any experimental scientist will agree with this, that the, the observer has an impact. The nature of the experiment is constructed to some extent with uh, potential endings in mind. It's very, very difficult uh, to develop experiments that are completely open-ended. I don't mm -hmm. know if people have done this in their own lives, but I've really applied myself to that with the help of some professional scientist friends. And it is, it is much easier to write uh, a short story with some degree of originality, I think, than it is to develop even a pedestrian experiment mm. that is truly rigorous. Yeah but open-ended. It's very, very, it's a very special kind of mind that can do that. And I have great respect for people who have. Um, and to go back to, you know, when I was talking about Michael Faraday's lectures back in the middle of the 19th century, some of his beautiful experiments performed live in front of this group of schoolboys. Um, he obviously, you know, of course, was really knew what he was doing. But he not only knew what he was doing, he knew how to explain it and to demonstrate it in ways that are very, very tricky. It's kind of beautiful theater, it's beautiful magic. Um, so I wonder what is the risk in keeping an open mind and applying the disciplines of experimental science to a broader frame of questions? I mean, is it just fear? Is yeah. it insecurity? Is it yeah. what that doesn't get the grants? Yeah, I think I, mean, I think it's I, it might be as mundane as that. I was going to say a circular firing squad of mm. people who will turn their backs on you and also stab you in the back as soon as you start to show some interest in these kind of um, what they might call absurd ideas. I think that there's a lot of that to it. I think that. I'm thinking of an archetypal figure of a sort of older man. Okay, so I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins, right? I'm thinking of. <laughs> I'm thinking of. For you. Yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. Oh God, get out of my head. But I'm thinking of Richard Dawkins sitting, you know, in his. He's, you know, he has just been one of the most roundly. You want to talk about debunked? That man has been debunked left and right for most of my adult life and he is still perceived as being a kind of intellectual figure who has something of worth to say and it's so interesting because there have been tons of profoundly interesting and also profoundly weird thinkers who have not just dismantled what somebody like Dawkins would say but have poked holes in our kind of fundamental understanding of current science whether that's physics or biology i don't care what you're talking about there are people who have questions but i think that when you have such a cultural moment like we had back i think in the early 21st century with people like dawkins and although i love his writing you know christopher hitchens 
Sam Harris, people like that. I think that they were so successful at entrenching this kind of smug, leaned back, uh, objective idea of what reality is. I think that became such in like a head virus for people um, that that now to even question those things, people very easily dismiss it and say, oh, you're crazy, you're dumb, that's not science, and they move on with their day. But aren't you, with those those three particular, I mean, because they're all coming from different, I mean, Hitchens clearly wasn't a scientist, and I'm not sure, I mean, Sam Harris, you know, nominally is, but, but what links them all together is, is really a, a campaign of, of, of atheism. Correct. Surely. Correct. Yeah. And I think that the idea of atheism in general is very interesting to me. We could probably do a whole episode on the evolution of atheism in my lifetime, but as somebody who grew up in a church, a Baptist church growing up, and then a non-denominational church where, where people spoke in tongues, um, when I got into college, you know, I, uh, my philosophy professor at the University of Texas at El Paso was a student of Daniel Dennett's, right? Daniel Dennett oh. is probably, he's the, he's the fourth column of, of the structure that we're talking about, right? And to come out of that religiosity, which by the way, has its uh, severe problems, but I don't think the problem is with God. I think the problem is with the organized and profoundly incurious nature of those religious establishments, which you're probably thinking now oddly mirrors our current scientism, right? Um, but when you come out of those structures that in many cases can be much more abusive than what I experienced, nobody ever mentally or physically harmed me in a church. I just could see through their particular bullshit. Um, when you come out of that and you have these these four thinkers who are very adept at taking the rhetorical strategies of something like the church and completely kneecapping it. They become your heroes in a way. You think, oh, these are the people who are rescuing me from a life of, you know, completely soulless and debilitating God worship. And you, d people don't want to give that up. People much smarter than me have, have called this current scientism basically the new religion. And that's what it is. Because those guys weren't correct. The religion that was before them was not correct. But it's time for us to start thinking about a third thing, right? It's time for us to start getting weird. Well, I support that completely. I, I have to say a couple of things. Uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, of that, um, you mentioned kind of a triumvirate before. Um, I, I just had, you know, worlds of time for Christopher Hitchens, even if I disagreed with him vigorously on so many things. Uh, I don't feel that way about Daniel Dennett. I, I, to me, he is an intellectual enemy of the first water. What a tedious um, guy that that person is. <laughs> I, I, uh, I I'm very proud to know personally uh, one of the reviewers uh, of his unfortunately famous book Consciousness Explained, and my friend came up with a, a line that has fortunately stuck around because it's very true of the book, Consciousness Ignored, mm. which I think is hilarious. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, Dennett is, is, is one of the most pedestrian people to ever uh, be hailed as a public intellectual. I think he, his effect 
uh, on his own field of consciousness studies has been dreadful. Um, people may not be aware, but in the 1980s, uh, consciousness studies, cognitive science, was burning really, really hot. I mean, I, I was to the point, I thought, I'm going to sell everything out and, and, and just, that's going to be my thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give up uh, writing and art. I'm going to give up anthropology. I'm just going to focus on that. Well, Dennett was one of the people who really managed to sabotage his own field. He, he really helped destroy it in a sense of bringing together cognitive science, uh, investigations of, from a neurology point of view, uh, the philosophy of mind. There was a tremendous convergence where humanist science, uh, people like Sheldrake, people like John Lilly, a whole bunch of really cool people, and, and the whole uh, just absolutely uh, bubbling psychotherapy, another era of, of possible investigation, some really cool Jungians, some people going off in some whole interesting directions. We were starting to find out a little bit about who we are as distinct animals, but also in a cultural anthropology sense, but also how we connected, you know, in a continuum sense. The initial evolutionary psychology thing was, was going off in some interesting directions. Well, people like Dennett, really said, well, we follow the science and, and, and that's it. There's really nothing to say. There's Darwin and there's no God and, and there's really no consciousness. It's an illusion. And who picked up the pieces? The people in what was you know then the field of AI and robotics mm. and, and voice recognition. And they said, well, all right, there's nothing really that we have to learn intellectually scientifically, but there is something that we can do in, in an engineering sense, and we're going to make a ton of money. We're going to create Alexas and Ceres, mm -hmm. and um, we're going to make sure that all customer service calls are handled by a robot, and that's where all the money has gone. And an entire wonderful convergence of fields that was starting to reveal something powerful and interesting and magical about the human mind just went in the in the dustbin, you know? And I don't know yeah. if it's gonna come back out. Well, something that sort of turned me off towards Dennett, even when uh, I was in this phase of my life, I was 18, a long time ago, um, was his discussion of qualia. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with his talk about qualia? Yes. So I believe it's, yeah, I believe it's in Consciousness Explained, but what Dennett is trying to do with qualia is he's trying to figure out, you know, we all have the same mechanisms in our brain, right? Uh, light bounces hypothetically, right? In the same way the to everybody, it hits the same receptors. Um, so how do we know that everybody is experiencing life in the same way? How do we know that they have the same qualia? This is a question that has plagued me since high school. When I see the color blue, how do I know that that's the same blue that you're seeing, right? Um, and so I would think about it, oh, well, it's, you know, it's electromagnetic spectrum, but none of that really matters, right? Because what we're talking about is a difference between information and interpretation. So the way that I subjectively interpret this electromagnetic information of blue, if I were to be magically transported into Chris's brain, would I see everything in these psychedelic colors and vice versa? You know, if you came into my head, would you think, oh my God, 
I thought that this would be like the ocean isn't blue. It's some color that we don't even know yet. So it's a very interesting question to me. And Dennett just makes it the most boring, rote, bullshit answer that you could possibly imagine. And he takes it back to these these logic games about, well, if we all have this kind of like wiring, to, I'm not doing it justice. But I remember when I read that, that's when I sort of fell out of love. I was like, this this question is so interesting because it's about subjectivity. And you fundamentally are ignoring that aspect of it. Like the subjectivity is the interesting part. And you're trying to make everything fucking mechanical. And I just, after that, well, I had no time for it. Well, that's why my you know, friend and others you know, said consciousness ignored mm -hmm. as opposed to consciousness explained. Right. Um, I, I want to pick up on um, a term that we've been using. And I, I, some people will know exactly what we mean, but I, I want to be very clear and, and put my, my own definition on of When we talk about scientism mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to science, both with capital S's, um, you mentioned scientism as a kind of, of religion, which mm -hmm. I think is, I, I think that's very fair. I don't think that's metaphorical. I think that is right. But I think in Rupert Sheldrake's terms, we could call it a social philosophy, a social belief, uh, a social system. Um, so it's an administrative bureaucratic idea uh, based on science, but which is not science. To go back to our previous episode, we were talking about Charles Fort's, uh, what he was in conflict with was not science, but with scientism, mm -hmm. you know, Correct. and I think that's a very important distinction. And I think if we break that down just a little bit, uh, we can see where the problem starts. People would appreciate that we have sciences, plural the life sciences, for instance. We have many different kinds of sciences, you know, that beautiful ology suffix, which we get from the Greeks, you know, we, there's a reason why we have a plurality of them. And it's very, very odd, in, in, and it's, it's fairly recent, that we have made a monolith of science, follow the science, you know, people have been saying about the virus during the pandemic. Well, actually, you know, there are quite a few sciences there. Exactly. You know, That's what I've been trying to say. There are quite a few specialists, you know. <laughs> it's not just one science. And I think that, I mean, the problem that we have now is that people feel science is a monolith. And right. they oftentimes say, well, it's under attack because of, say, fundamentalist Christians. Uh, well, actually, you know, I have never heard... And I've, I've done a little bit of research into this. I have never heard a really strong negative position about quantum mechanics. Mm. It just doesn't figure on the radar screen. I think there's an argument about creationism versus intelligent design versus the theory of evolution. That's what people really mean. Yeah. But we're somehow blurring all the sciences together mm. so that if there is any one problem, I mean, this would have been something that would have just absolutely freaked people out well into the 20th century, but certainly in the 19th century, because they said, well, look, we're just, our sciences are not at the same level. 
Yeah. There are certain things that we know a great deal about, yeah. and there are things that we're really in the dark about. So it isn't like one big puzzle, and you pull out a piece and the whole thing falls apart. It's not like that. Right. It's a whole bunch of different puzzles, and they're coming together in different ways. And somehow we've made of science, scientism, where everything is dependent on everything else, and we need to have a degree of finish and polish across the all across the board, and it's just not it's just not so. Right. No, I love that. Yeah, I love all of that, and I think that. Oh, where to even start? You said so many good things there. <laughs> um, I think that when you're talking about all these different sciences and them not kind of uh, working together, you know, back in the day when you had these people who were Renaissance men who had all these different areas of interests, like what they were really doing very well was they were able to syncretize their knowledge and in some cases the bullshit that they made up into worldviews that were helpful. And I think that people too often want to look at somebody who has, let's say somebody's worldview, let's say it, it can be condensed into a 20-page paper, right? What people do now because of scientism is they find the two or three sentences where that worldview is a little faulty or incoherent, and they focus on those two sentences and they throw the rest of those 20 pages out the door. And what these people were not doing, they were doing the exact opposite, right? right They're like, bring right. in all the truth and also bring in all the fake stuff because we're going to be able to find something interesting in bringing all these things in. So it makes me think, you've mentioned Rupert Sheldrake um, several times, who we both have a lot of time for. Um, and it made me think of this great article, essay, that was published in Boing Boing. Are you familiar with Boing Boing? The, uh -huh. the, yeah, yeah. By a guy named Mitch Horowitz, who I also have a lot of time for. He's a, he's this great, uh, he's a Satanist, actually, <laughs> um, who <laughs> uh, does a lot of great work in the area of new thought. Um, so this kind of early 20th century uh, sort of power of positive thinking mindset type stuff, right? But he wrote this great essay after the amazing Randy died, okay? And I think what we've been talking about are kind of, maybe not arch enemy, because I, I would like to keep Richard Dawkins as our arch enemy, but maybe mm -hmm. maybe one of the, <laughs> the lesser demons in this particular grimoire is James Randy. Um, so he wrote this article talking about all of the ways that Randy completely messed up skepticism, turned it into this kind of pedantic um, farce that in a lot of ways was just as hoaxy as the actual hoaxers, right? Randy was kind of going from the same uh, bombastic P.T. Barnum con man level that a lot of these people that, that you talked about at the beginning of the episode were coming from, but he did it in towards an end that is fundamentally destructive and awful, right? So just a couple of paragraphs. I have another paragraph that might be more appropriate towards the end of the episode. But this one in particular mentions Randy's relationship with Sheldrake. So if it's all right with you, I'd like to just read these two quick paragraphs. 
Please, um, please. I'd like to hear him. All right. <clears throat> Indeed, Randy showed willingness to mislead the public about testing certain paranormal claims. While simultaneously touting his quote-unquote results and trashing reputations. Such was the case with his public rebuttal to Cambridge University biologist Rupert Sheldrake. Sheldrake's theory of morphic resonance proposes that memory is inherent in nature. The biologist has written that morphic fields of social groups connect together members of the group even when they are many miles apart and provide channels of communication through which organisms can stay in touch at a distance. They help provide an explanation for telepathy. To this, Randy retorted, quote, We at the James Randy Educational Foundation have tested these claims. They fail. Yet, Sheldrake complained that Randy ignored his requests to see the test data. Reporter Will Storr of Britain's The Telegraph followed up with Randy and received a series of dog-ate-my-homework excuses until the reporter realized that the amazing Randy was either misleading him about the existence of tests or was proffering an incredibly Byzantine and inconsistent backstory that the results, quote, got washed away in a flood. Unbelievable as Randy's responses were, he continued running down the biologist in public. This is what sociologist Truzy dubbed quote, pseudo-skepticism, rejection, absent investigation. I thought that was good. That's excellent. That is absolutely excellent. Um, a couple of things I have uh, to, to add. Um, I, I think we really are working our way up to a, a serious um, uh, focused discussion of, of Rupert Sheldrake, but I would point out that his theory of morphic resonance draws heavily on uh, the work of Henri Bergson, a Nobel Prize yep. winner, yep. Uh, Matter and Memory. Um, and frankly, there is more in Darwin, uh, particularly in speculations in The Voyage of the Beagle, uh, which came out in 1832, so uh, dec two decades before uh, Origin of the Species. Uh, but there is the problem with uh, the criticism of Sheldrake, I think, is that it needs to focus on um, his first two books, uh, The New Science and uh, The Presence of the Past, which he, he really uh, bring, focuses fully on, on his theory. And he's bringing an enormous amount of experience uh, as a botanist and a morphologist. Um, to that, in addition to being a tremendous writer. Mm -hmm. And I think that where Randy, um, and I hate to say it, because uh, I'm great, great fans of Penn and Teller, uh, I've just done their master class, um, which was absolutely sensational. I've seen them many times perform in Vegas. Um, I really do uh, enjoy and admire them greatly. But I, I get a little tired when they get on their... Um, skeptical uh, bandwagon and they had a show called bullshit which was entirely devoted to debunking everything mm -hmm. um, which it, it just gets very very tedious mm -hmm. but I think that 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 with they are looking at a framework 
that is simply well beyond their expertise. Right. Correct. And really, you you could talk about electromagnetism in 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 many of the same way. It's just it's not a framework that is really uh, what they should be thinking about. Um, because I would propose that the idea of uh, which we draws from from quantum uh, physics of non-locality yes is yes. about as magical an idea as anyone could ever think of Correct. bell's theorem i mean you look at that now that is accepted or, or certainly taken on board mm-hmm. or let's say not dismissed within our most eminent scientific arenas now i'm just at a loss of why that is any more uh physical and real and scientific than what Sheldrake is talking about. I just, I don't see that at all. So Um, I'm going to spitball here. Is it okay if I spitball for a second? Yeah. Okay. So basically what you're saying here is, is vibing with me so hardcore because when you told me that we were going to talk about frauds and hoaxes today, my mind lit up. Um, When you're thinking about non-locality and you're thinking about quantum physics, you're thinking about a state that is both true and not true at the same time. And then once the observer comes in, that reality collapses into a quote-unquote truth, right? But before Schrodinger opens up the box and looks at his cat, the cat is both alive and dead, right? So we, we could say that before Schrodinger opens up that box, there is both a truth and a hoax, Right? That's a good way to put it. So yeah. what we're thinking of, and this is not an original idea. This comes from a, a, a course that I took on reading tarot cards over at RuneSoup. Um, so all shout outs to, to Gordon on this one. But um, the idea that was posited in that course is that fraud and hoaxes have a real coherent utility in our understanding of reality. And I don't mean that in a way that, you know, that myths uh, sort of explain things away and that symbols do X, Y, Z. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that in a quantum non-local sense, being able to take in both things that we already know to be true, once Schrodinger's box has already been opened, and also things that we know to be both true and untrue, when the box is unopened, create a kind of field of understanding that allows us to come to greater levels of truth than we would get if we were only ever exposed to the open box. Does that make sense? Like, yes, it does. <laughs> that, yes, it does. I know it sounds crazy, but what, but what this theory is positing is that People who are frauds and hoaxers, whether it was spiritualists in the 1920s or, you know, uh, tarot readers in Paris in, you know, 1870 or whatever, the fact that they were engaging in a game that involved both truth and hoax created the room, the kind of psychic and, and I mean, maybe even down to the atoms of the room itself, it created the non-local properties that allowed for truth to arrive. So, you know, in a weird way, all the fraudsters and the hoaxsters and the Charles Fords are so much more valuable and so much more important than any Richard Dawkins at any moment of any day because 
a person like Dawkins is leaving out something that is true, which is the frauds and is the hoaxes. Those are true because they exist. They're not true because they're true. Now I'm speaking like a Buddhist koan. You'll have to forgive me. <laughs> but I feel like I feel like of all people who I could talk to about this, because it's been bothering me for a while, it would be you. Do you know what I mean when I say there's like there's truth and then there's true hoaxes? I, I think I do absolutely. I, I, okay. I think I think I absolutely do. Um, and I, I think that it's interesting that you know. I, one of the characters in, in, a, in a book of mine, you know, says, in illusion, there is truth. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea is that, that if you can perform an illusion, you, you actually do have to really have an understanding of the larger uh, physics, both in a, in a physics sense and in a metaphoric sense. And we, we learn a great deal when we're able to engage with hoax, with illusion, uh, that that is the way we we stumble forward t towards truth. I mean, consider a great experiment, you know, which sounds a lot like a, a magic act. You take a live mouse and you put it in a bell jar, and the mouse dies. You take this another live mouse, same bell jar, but you put in a very fresh, lush leaf of mint and the mouse lives. I mean, that from a certain frame looks very much like magic. And it is magic in, in our sense of, of the way we use the word. Um, but it is the way forward also towards another kind of understanding, which is what we mean by science. And only when we engage with, with possibilities with a wide range of possibilities, which include the hoaxes. I mean, let's not forget Leibniz enjoying, you know, the Baron de la Haunton, you know? Mm -hmm. He had time for that. Leibniz, for, if Leibniz has time for something, uh, you know, I've got time for it. Sure. Know? That's my view. Yep. And if he thought, you know, stories about giants and stone cities with mysterious people, you know, then that's I'm down with that too mm -hmm. you know uh, and maybe enjoyment and, and participation in life is is even more important than understanding you know could it be that that's the case you know a, a lot of people believe that and I think there's a lot of truth to it you know um, mm -hmm. maybe understanding is kind of overrated it is and that brings me to this next quote from this article that Mitch wrote um, I'll put in the show notes but Mitch writes, we urgently need good skeptics today. We're living under a cloud of a president who spreads QAnon conspiracy theories and 5 a.m. Twitter smears while questioning the gravity of COVID, the reality of climate change, as Randy did too, along with the proclivity for eugenics, and the facts of responsible news coverage. <laughs> Even in our truth-challenged times, however, Randy never stopped baiting researchers and punching down at eccentrics who may have been self-deluded about their psychical abilities. Yes, Randy may have bagged some con artists along the way. Senator McCarthy might have caught a few authentic Soviet sympathizers or spies, but at what cost? Each, may, each man laid tracks for future demagogues who proved less interested in defending facts than in promulgating smears and half-truths for personal benefit. 
I sympathize with those who want to challenge credulity and generalized references with, to psych psychical phenomena and all the more with researchers and investigators who expose frauds. I sympathize, too, with those who have lost a man, a friend, and a spouse. But to the general intellectual community, and anyone concerned with critical inquiry in general, Randy's legacy should serve as a cautionary tale and a call to restore sound practices when discussing or writing about contentious topics in science or any field. These are things that a showman can deter but never erase. Well, well said, you know, and, and the thing that's interesting about Randy and, and others of the, the, you know, who kind of are the debunkers, I mean, I just can't imagine any label that I would less enjoy uh, on my spirit than, than being a debunker, <laughs> you know, um, and it's interesting about that word. Uh, I encourage people to, to do, do a little bit of etymological etymological investigation of that. It's a very interesting where that comes from, uh, debunking. Um, but, you know, I can understand a, a concern about psychics charging people a lot of money. This is what Randy and others have always claimed, that, that it's, this is billion-dollar industry of people being bilked because, you know, someone claims they can talk to their dead mother. You know, Honestly, if you investigate that, that is a much, much smaller deal than what's yeah. going on. Right. I don't think people are harmed by checking out their horoscope in the newspaper. No. I think every time uh, when I started publishing, every time I would go to New York, and I was devastated when, when she wasn't there, I would go see this fortune teller in the West Village. And did I really believe everything? No. But she had a beautiful figure. She was fun. Mm -hmm. I liked her touching my hands. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a good luck superstition thing. Yep. You know? Yep. I knew if I went there and I'd I would have a I would have a couple of other things. There was uh, there was a jazz club, the zinc club that I would go to, and I would go see Kandinsky's watercolors. Those were kind of my little rituals. Mm. And I don't. I, I thought of them as kind of you know connected. You know they were no. You know they were they were part of my my ritual practice of of a happy visit to New York, um, a routine that I would follow. And I didn't think they were doing me any harm. I I I, I thought they were you know kind of part of, of of a magical practice in a bigger sense or or a more private sense. And I I really wonder if people are as taken by all these psychic frauds and fortunes. You know, I, I don't think so. I think that people are, I mean, look at fortune cookies, you know? Mm -hmm. That's just a kind of a fun way to end a Chinese meal. I mean, I, I, I think people like Randy, uh, and to some extent Penn and Teller, are, are attributing more seriousness and less intelligence to people than is fair. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's the worst thing you can do is to look down on people and think, oh, they're just being taken advantage of. Right. But meanwhile, they're following the science. Yep. You know? Yep. It's like... They're well, not being taken advantage of in any way. Obviously. No. Obviously. No. No. And, and look, no one is saying that there, there, there isn't some seriousness with fraud. I mean, uh, I like the story of, of, of Johann Berenger, you know, uh, going back to the 17th century. Tragic story, really professor at the University of Würzburg. 
Uh, he was an avid fossil collector, and let's not forget there wasn't the framework of, of evolutionary theory then. Um, so it was, it was very, uh, it was a rough science collecting fossils. Well, he started to, to uh, find a very rich vein of salamanders and unusual lizards, uh, frogs copulating, and some very, very intact bird fossils, which was all great. And he, he started publishing beautiful copper plate engraving books and became a, quite a significant scientific figure of his time, a scientific figure mm -hmm. of his time, I might add. And then, unfortunately, he started finding fossils with Hebrew characters mm. in them. And then one day, he found one with his own name in it. And he realized that his students had been playing uh, what was, to them, quite a funny joke, but it ended up having quite serious repercussions. And he, his career and reputation were destroyed, and he spent the rest of his life and all his money uh, trying to buy back his books so he could destroy them. So no one is saying that there aren't some downsides to to fraud and to hoaxes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah, it's a terrible story. That seems more like a malicious prank, you know? Well, like, I think I think that's exactly what the way to think of it. And I think that malicious is the key word, intent. You know, the intent to to really damage someone's uh, reputation and belief. So we're not saying that, that, that these, you know, that frauds and hoaxes and things are all just uh, fun, imaginative uh, expressions of, of lateral <clears throat> thinking and possibility. Um, but I think the argument still is that if we are too certain about what is true, then we have really lost our place, our way in the search for truth. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. I think that we have to keep keep things open. And, and oftentimes the great ambivalence, the ambiguity of life is, is really such a powerful call to action to continue the search. Um, and I, I found a piece of, of writing which um, it, it, it's sort of sitting out on its own at the moment. I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I, it has a place in, in, the, in the big novel that I'm working on, and I, I think it might be kind of an interesting way to, uh, to close up shop for this episode. Cool. Um, yeah. I wonder if you'd be okay with me reading it. A hundred percent. Before we do that, I just want to say if anybody has any questions, comments, thoughts, please do email me at thebutterflyinyourmouth at gmail.com. Um, go ahead and follow Chris on Twitter and Facebook. I'm no longer on uh, Twitter. I've been off Facebook for quite some time, but you can follow my blog at brokenriverbooks.com where I'm blogging every day about a different topic. Um, sometimes it's uh, cool art pieces. Sometimes it's more along the lines of stuff that we would talk about on this show, but I just want to make sure that everybody is staying connected and LinkedIn. And also, by the way, if you're listening to this on the JDO show feed, please do go over to nocountrypod.podbean.com and subscribe to that one because eventually the episodes on the JDO show are going to become uh, very strange and experimental. I have a lot of cool uh, plans for what I'm doing with that. I recently got a Tascam DS05X field recorder and uh, my brother and I are going to be doing some 
interesting things with the interview format and, uh, you know, kind of adding music and distortion to those things. So it'll become a much more strange and uh, less accessible podcast than this one. So I want to make sure that you're over on the correct feed so that you can keep getting these episodes. But with that, I give the floor to Chris and uh, take it away, sir. Okay, this is about, uh, you know, Melville had a beautiful expression of being a thought diver. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is about diving uh, in both a literal and a, and a metaphorical sense. It's about an incident that really happened to me, and I'm still wondering about it. I'd seen moray eels, groupers, barracudas, giant turtles, sharks very often. But on this one occasion off the island of Meleta in the Solomon Archipelago, which lies at about nine degrees south, 160 degrees east, and is the most populous island in the nation, and also one of its most undeveloped. I was down about 75 to 80 feet and descending when I saw something that really made me reconsider. It was an aquatic life form I'd never encountered before and have never been able to find a record of since. It looked like something between a giant salamander and a Murray River cod, only perhaps nearly three times the size of the latter, with very large protruding eyes, dead dark like holes in the water. Its jaws were enormous, but the thing that really worried me was that it gave off an uncanny sense of presence, like nothing I felt ever before or since. This wasn't just a predatory or defensive appraisal. It was something deeper and fundamentally other. A knowing kind of malignance. Those bulging eyes in the liquid black body, which despite its grace of stillness seemed bloated and repulsive, made me think of choking to death on phlegm or blood. Or those people who go mad and drink bleach or motor oil. I didn't feel in any way lightheaded. My vision was clear. I was seeing something really there, but I felt a profound inner imperative to ascend. I had a dive knife. I didn't fear its attack in any kind of shark sense. Its presence alone was an attack. I knew and felt that in my central nervous system. Like you, maybe, My dreams sometimes feature creatures, monsters, giants, dwarves, misshapen beggars on a street in Guatemala in the rain. But I don't want to see whatever I saw that time in the Solomons in the flesh ever again. When I have seen it in dreams, I wake in a sweat as if I've just come up too fast in water, not so much terrified, not even really scared 
exactly, but purely and permanently repelled by something utterly beyond my understanding.